and we're going to start praying together. Um, you know, every morning, every Sunday morning when we walk in, there's new faces that we haven't seen for a long time. Isn't this lovely? So we get to sing together, we get to see each other, and we also get to pray together. So there's something that happens when we pray together before a God who sees us separately, but also sees us gathering. So one of the things we do here at Lakeview is we, we place pauses in the middle of our pastoral prayer where you pray together with us in your heart and your mind. You can pray words if there are things that you want to pray to the, to the Lord in that silent moment, or if there's a picture that stands out in your mind, just um, bring that before God. Know that he hears us as we gather. He hears our hearts and our minds and invites us to come to him. So we're going to pray together, and after the pause is done, we will say together, Lord, hear our prayer, and then we'll go on a little bit. So let's pray together. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you, even from a distance. You know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say. Before I start the first sentence, I look behind me, and you're there. And then up ahead, and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky... You're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. So, Lord, find us in our fears Find us in our joys, find us in our planning, and in our playing. And together, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for our city where we're beginning to hear the sounds of backyard gatherings and laughter over the fences where we anticipate and enjoy the beginnings of festivals and music and drama. We pray for wisdom as we gather. We pray for safety. We pray for teachers to be restored in these summer months after a grueling year filled with unknowns and instant shifts and changes. And we pray for wisdom for our decision makers. We pray for business owners who are figuring out what a new season looks like. Help us to look to you for wisdom, Jesus. We pray for relationships to be healed, to be restored and made new. We pray for grace for each other as we step into each other's lives once more. We thank you for creative activities for our children and our youth. Lord, 
Hear our heal our city's fears and broken, ineffective policies and practices. Find us in our joys. Help us in our planning and in our playing. together. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, we've woken many mornings this week to the smell of smoke in the air. We know that there are fires burning in our province that threaten people's homes and communities and livelihoods. And as a community this morning, we acknowledge you as Lord over land and sea. And you are the one that we look to when we struggle. We know that all of these things are in your hands, even as we are complicit in creating some of the conditions. So, Lord, we pray for rain. We pray for communities fighting against the fires, and we pray for the safety of those who are on the front lines. And we also continue to hold before you the ongoing, relentless reality of a world in pandemic mode. Would you help us, Lord? We pray for wisdom for our leaders. And we pray for our friends and neighbors enjoying these days at cabins and cottages in tents and trailers. May there be much laughter as they enjoy the beauty of the world that you have created. Lord Jesus, find us in our fears. Find us in our joys. Find us in our planning and in our praying. And together, Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, we pray for our country. Let us not become numb to the numbers we continue to hear. Let us pay attention to the mourning in our country as we continue to find unmarked graves. Help us to find new paths forward in healing. And let us pay attention as needed to health numbers rising and falling, which seem unending. Lord, you know the numbers of hair on our head. You know the sparrows that fall. Numbers are no barrier to you. We worship you, Lord, who knows all these things. And together, Lord, hear our prayer. There's an old song I sang when I rocked my babies to sleep. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. His hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, sister, in his hands. He's got all of us together in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Lord, hear our prayer. Well, welcome, everybody. Again, I hope this moment isn't lost on you, hearing the voices sing, seeing this room fuller than it's been in a year's time. I'm so glad you're a part of this, so glad you're able to take this in.
If you are just joining us, we've been in a teaching series all summer, and we've been talking about wonder and miracles and opening our lives to God in new ways. So with that as our baseline, with that in our minds, this morning we're going to dive back into another episode in the life of Elijah as we spend some time thinking about the following. Number one, the things that we keep in our lives to make us feel safe and secure. And then we'll spend some time talking about how to handle our Bible heroes. And then finally, why pain that is not transformed will always be transmitted. Yeah, all of that is going to show up in our passage. You don't believe me? You don't believe me? It's there. Let me show you. Check it out. Here we go. Second Kings, after Ahab died, Moab rebelled against Israel. One day Ahaziah fell through the balcony railing on the rooftop of his house in Samaria and was injured, and he sent messengers off to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Am I going to recover from this accident? And again, the opening lines to this particular episode, like the ones before it, are tightly packed with very important details. It's almost like a movie trailer, you know, where you hit the high points of the film in about 30 seconds, it tells the story without giving the ending away. This is what these opening lines do for us here this morning. So what do we have here? Ahab, the evil king, has died. And then his son, Ahaziah, has taken a nasty spill that has threatened his life. So right away, these details signal that there is some political uncertainty brewing in Israel because their leadership is in question. Why is it in question? Well, the old king is dead. The new king is just about dead. So then what better time for Moab, a region unwillingly under Israel's control, to rebel and to break free? That makes sense, right? When your enemy is weak, that is the time to strike. So what does King Ahaziah do? In his weakened state, he looks for help. But where does he look? He looks outside of Israel, outside of Yahweh, outside of God, which is going to be a problem. So what he does is that he sends messengers to Ekron. And who knows where Ekron is? I didn't know either, so I looked it up. You don't want to know where Ekron is? It's about 25 miles west of Jerusalem. It's a Philistine city, which means, think about it, it means that Ahaziah sent his messengers to their enemies for help. It's weird, right? And he's out looking for the kind of help where perhaps his enemies can consult with this false and foreign god, Baal. And if you remember from previous episodes in the life of Elijah, the baseline idea for this Baal religion is still one that you and I face today, and it's this. If you don't take care of yourself then nobody else will. Sometimes we call this being self-sufficient or being self-made or being self-focused, all of which is in direct contrast to Yahweh's long-standing promise to take care of us and to take care of this world. But when you stop and think about it, can you really blame this bedridden king? I mean, he just got hurt terribly. 
He's worried that he's going to die. So he asked the question that any of us would ask. Am I going to make it? He's headed into uncharted territory. It's like he's heading into a brand new world. He's not sure what to expect. He's uncertain about the future. But instead of trusting in Yahweh, instead of trusting in God's promises, what does he do? He falls back on his old patterns, his old ways of being self-sufficient and self-secure. So let's stop there for just one moment. Because you and I, we've been in that same spot, right? Haven't we? We know that God says, I will take care of you. And sometimes our response to that is, well, um, God, I think I'm going to take care of myself this time. Like, thanks, but no thanks. And then we head into new worlds, uncharted territories like King Ahaziah. And when we do that, what do we do? We actually bring our old world with us. All those things that keep us safe and secure. Why? Well, just in case we might need them. Maybe think about it like this. My dad came to Canada in 1965. He was 18 years old. He set sail on a ship from Naples, and about 12 days later, he landed at Pier 21 in Halifax. And from there, he told me it was a three-day train ride from, uh, from um, Halifax to Toronto's Union Station, where he was met by his brother, his brother's wife, my aunt, whom he hadn't seen in three years. So right away, they took him to their home, and it's actually the home that my aunt just sold just two or three months ago. And actually, while she was cleaning the house out, getting ready to sell it, she came across a crate, a crate actually that belonged to my dad. It's the crate that my dad used to travel from Italy to Canada in 1965. And this crate had been in storage this whole time. So, on the left, there it is, a little bit moldy, a little worse for wear. And here's what one of the labels reads. Italia, Italy up front, so central Naples. Uh, this boxer bag belongs to Mr. Manifo Daniel. He's traveling on a ship called the Christopher Columbus. That's not subtle at all, is it? It's landing in Halifax, and it is September the 19th, 1965. So when my cousin was helping my aunt clean up her house, he sent me these pictures, and right away I sent them to my dad, and I asked him, so what did you pack in that crate? When you left your family, your friends, your home, the only world you knew to leave and come to a new world, what did you think you needed? What did you bring with you? What was most important to you then? What belonged to you? As you looked into this new, fresh start, this un incredible unknown, whatever you were facing into, what did you think you needed to bring along with you? Was it clothes? Was it family heirlooms, books, other valuables? And do you know what he told me? What was inside that crate? You're going to love this. It was food. <laughs> Cured meats, homemade cheeses and wines, olive oil from his region, and other delectable delicacies. Yeah, I, I laughed a little bit too. So I said, uh, what? What? Why? 
why would you bring cheese and wine halfway across the world? And his reply to me was, well, I was worried. I was worried that when I got to the other side, that I wouldn't have what I needed. Think about that for a moment. That feels familiar, doesn't it? Sometimes aren't we a little bit like my dad or a little bit like King Ahaziah? We have these very normal feelings. There's nothing wrong with wondering whether or not you'll have enough moving forward or when you step into the unknown. But for the follower of Jesus, our approach to the unknown, to safety and security, is to trust that God will keep his promise And that promise is that he will take care of us and that he will take care of this world. And maybe part of that for you and I is fighting off that natural impulse to do it all on our own. Especially when we feel like we're in danger from all sides like King Ahaziah. Remember, this guy is hurt. Now there's this international threat from Moab, and to make matters worse, Elijah's about to get involved. So God angel spoke to Elijah the Tishbite, up on your feet, go out and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria with this word. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're running off to consult Baalzebub, God of Ekron? Here's a message from the God you've tried to bypass you're not going to get out of that bed you're in. You're as good as dead already. Elijah delivered the message and was gone. And the messengers went back and the king said, so why are you back so soon? What's going on? And they told him, a man met us and said, turn around and go back to the king who sent you. Tell him God's message. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're running off to consult Beelzebub, God of Ekron? You needn't bother You're not going to get out of the bed you're in. You're as good as dead already. And the king said, tell me more about this man who met you and said these things to you. What was he like? Shaggy, they said, and wearing a leather belt. And he said, this has to be Elijah the Tishbite. And so Elijah intercepts the messengers, and he sends this message back to the king. But it was a message that the king was not expecting, and it was the kind of message the king did not want to hear. And so quite obviously, he becomes upset. So what does he do next? I'll save you the reading. He sends a military platoon of 50 men to fetch Elijah. And long story short, Elijah meets them, says he's not going. He then calls lightning down from the skies, and he zaps them all, dead, wipes them out. Crazy, right? So then the king, what does he do next? Well, of course, He sends another platoon of 50 men, this time demanding that Elijah come down and meet the king, and again, lightning down from the sky, and strikes the platoon dead, their toast. And so the king sends yet another platoon, a third platoon of 50 men. But this time, the commanding officer takes a less forceful approach than his predecessors, And then the angel of God told Elijah, well, go ahead and don't be afraid. Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. And Elijah told him, God's word, 
Because you sent messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, as if there were no god in Israel to whom you could pray, you'll never get out of that bed alive. Already, you're as good as dead. Time out. What do we do with stories like this? The prophet Elijah doesn't fit into any of our categories. Have you ever called lightning down from heaven to smite your enemies? I know you've tried, but has it worked? It hasn't, right? Plus, think about it. People getting electrocuted due to lightning, mm, that makes me feel kind of gross. I don't like what I'm reading in the Bible here. And then beyond all of that, what's the best way to understand these odd passages of Scripture and then odd heroes of faith like Elijah who are so out of place in our modern understanding. So what do we do with Bible stories and Bible characters that are hard to hold on to? Maybe think about it like this. A few years ago, I was in Detroit with a buddy. At the very last minute, uh, we decided to catch a Red Wings game. Why not, right? I'm not really a Red Wings fan, but I'm excited to see hockey. But I think I was even more excited to be in their brand new arena. It was just built, and I was curious to see what the most modern hockey arena would offer. And when I walked in, oh, I was taken aback. Everything was so big. Everything was larger than life. It was as if I had entered a shrine. The first thing I saw when I walked in were these big letters that read Olympia. They're actually from Detroit's very first arena built in the 1920s, and they saved these letters, and now they relocated them where? Next to a 100-foot image of Gordie Howe. Yes, Saskatoon's favorite son. There he is, 100 feet of Gordie Howe, the old-school legend. And not too far from Gordie Howe was this gigantic modern legend, Steve Eiserman. And then around the corner, there was this larger-than-life bronze statue of Alex Del Vecchio, completely with smoke streams coming off him to accentuate his skating and his shot. It's like he was in motion. And then came my favorite part. Ah, the goalie masks. Those are my favorite. You got 50, spanning 50 years here with those four buckets. And I didn't even need to read the sign. I know who those belong to. Terry Sawchuk, Mike Vernon, Chris Osgood, Dominic Hasek. Those are the heroes of Detroit goalie lore. They are legends. These guys are champions. This is hockey royalty enshrined in the arena, but also enshrined in my imagination. So, was Gordie Howe a hundred feet tall in real life? No. These goldies, were they flawless? Were they perfect? Did the newspapers ever utter a bad word about them? Did they play forever? Well, they're the goldies. They had good games and bad games. No. What about that bronze, larger-than-life statue? Were there really jet streams coming off of this guy when he would skate and shoot? No. But when you combine all of their stories, when you combine all of the artifacts and all the grainy images, all of that becomes legendary. A fantasy that moves us beyond reality 
And that actually is the point. So in the same way, Elijah and this story of lightning coming down from the sky becomes the stuff of legends. Elijah is a larger-than-life character in our minds, in our imaginations. He might as well be 100 feet tall. He defies all of our categories. He escapes all of our explanations. There's no way we could do what he does. There's no way we could recreate what he did. But from where we sit today, these amazing Bible stories and the artifacts and the grainy images, they all come together once again. Why? To perhaps once again open us to God's wonder, a wonder that is beyond our reality. And again, that just might be the whole point. So this tells us that in a way, Elijah is emblematic, just like the hockey stars from back in the day, or how about some real-life heroes like Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela, right? These are real people. These are regular people. These are flawed people, but they are also legendary people doing amazing things, including opening us up to a wonder that is beyond our current reality. But I know for you and I, when it comes to Bible stories, in a way, we want to explain it all the way, right? We want to understand the whole thing. We want to pull it apart. We want to dissect it. We want to define it. But we can't do that with every story. We can't do that with every character. And again, that might be the point. And if you're listening here, you're saying, well, Joe, that sounds crazy. In fact, that sounds foolish. And if that's how you feel, well, you are exactly right. May I remind you, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is a righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So how does this scripture help us understand the crazy story we just read? It puts it into perspective. And it reminds us that the point of the story isn't a magical prophet. The point of a story isn't the king who's making mistakes. The point of the story isn't lightning on demand. Now take it further. That also helps us realize that the Bible... The Bible isn't some weird textbook that everyone got issued at the beginning of the year where you can find all the answers to life at the back. No, that's not what the Bible is. No, the Bible is about inspiring us to what? Inspire us to let go of control, to let go of needing to have all of the answers, to let go of simply and only boasting about ourselves and instead boasting about the Lord. And what does that mean? I think it means to be able to honestly say, I don't know it all. 
I don't know what to do. I don't know what the future look, looks like. But regardless, I do know that God's got me. As crazy and as unexplicable as life is, God's got me. When I feel like I'm being attacked from all sides, God's got me. When I feel like everything is crashing down on me at once, well, God's got me. And because God has you, because God has me, what you used to hold, the stuff that you packed into that crate to keep you safe and secure as you entered into the unknown, well, that crate and those contents, well, they got to go. And as I died, exactly as God's word spoken by Elijah had said, because Ahaziah had no son, his brother Joram became the next king. The succession took place in the second year of the reign of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And like we've seen in other episodes, the last few lines of every chapter here, of every story, again, it's packed with some important details. And to me, these last lines are striking. Why? Ahaziah meets his end. And with his end comes the temporary end to Baal worship in Israel. Joram, unlike his brother and father, did not worship Baal, and he actually took down all of the Baal artifacts that his father had set up. So reading between the lines here, what has happened? What's going on? I think it's this, that Joram made this intentional decision to not pass on what was passed on to him. In a sense, the Baal idolatry worship stopped, ended with him. And I think there's something in there for us. Think about it like this. The pain and suffering that is not transformed is usually projected onto others. If you do not transform your pain, you will always transmit it. So maybe the big, hard question that this story leaves us with is just that. What are you transmitting these days? Or perhaps a better question would be, what needs to be transformed in you these days? What needs to come to an end with you? What is the pain and suffering that you are experiencing that has led you, like Ahaziah, to look everywhere? except to God for help and direction. You know what it is. It might even be on the forefront of your mind in this moment. And if it is, allow me to encourage you with this last word of Scripture. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, and going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
You'll be transformed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. And so, my friends, as you head into this next week, you be mindful of things that you packed for the journey, the things that you keep around to make you feel safe, and then maybe remember that God's got you. God's got you. God's always had you. He will continue to have you. As you roll into this week, perhaps thinking about the story, perhaps dipping into the scriptures on your own, remember, the Bible isn't an answer book. It's not a, an owner's manual. There's not a quiz at the end of your life. Instead, it is this beautiful work of art that opens us up to God's wonder. And so as you roll into this week, no matter what it may bring, be mindful of that wonder, your part in it, and perhaps even recognize the things that need to end with you, perhaps things that need to end this very week.